This morning we are going to find ourselves in Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8. And uh, again, I will be using this fantastic beauty that I found. I'm very excited about it. It's one of the things I look forward to on Sunday mornings. All right, Joshua chapter 7. Before we read our scripture today, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Our hearts are prone to wander, and Lord, we feel it. We feel it every day. The world tugs at our heart, asking us to to tarry and to go with it. Father, hold us close to you. Let us know that you are our God. Instill in us a right spirit. And help us to stand firm against the enemy. Go before us as we read this scripture today. And speak to us through your word. For it is your word that we've come to hear. I pray that you would bless me and have your spirit rest upon me as I preach your gospel this morning. May we hear it and may we understand it and take it to heart. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zibdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shabiram, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man to by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. 
he and that and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush, and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place, toward the Arabah, to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all and Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city 
Not a man was left in I or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left, survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them went to the very last and fallen to the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with, the, with, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not sure how familiar all of you are with the game of paintball. But if you're not, basically it's simulating a war zone out in a forest. And instead of bullets and death, you have many balls filled with paint that your gun shoots at other people. And a paintball gun has an air tank so that it can propel these paintballs at roughly 300 feet per second. If the paintball breaks on you, you're dead, and you have to go and wait out of the field until the game is over. Now, I used to play a lot because I worked for a camp that had a paintball field. And I, I also refed games for them, and I got pretty good at paintball. And I was playing a game once, it was 6 versus 6, and the game was King of the Hill, or Take the Fort. My team started at one fort, which is Fort Zulu, and we had to take Fort Delta on the other side of the field. Before the game started, I gathered my team around, and we talked to each other about what we were going to do. 
We had to have a plan. You don't just walk in all willy-nilly. You got to plan out what you're going to do. So three of my teammates had decided to move forward right towards the base and engage in front of the base, just shooting it with paintballs repeatedly to keep people scared of peeking over the walls. And two other teammates are going to move around to the left and try and make sure that no one is allowed to leave Fort Delta. The goal is to pin them inside the fort. And last but not least, my role is to go to the right, way out of the way, sneaking through the woods as quickly and quietly as I can. Why was I selected for this task? Well, I may have been a little bit younger and maybe a little bit more agile, but I was seen by my friends as the ninja because I could melt into the forest and not be seen. And I was patient. I could wait until the right moment to strike. So the game starts. My teammates all move as quickly as they can, taking as much ground as they can. And then I start moving through the woods quickly but quietly. We had 20 minutes to take the fort, and if we didn't take it at 20 minutes, we lost. And a wise player knows that if you take the fort at 19 minutes and 50 seconds, you still win. So I took my time. I crawled through the brush very slowly, but as quick as possible, making sure I wasn't seen. And at about 19 minutes, I finally make it behind Delta Base. And I see the four remaining players on the enemy team sitting there. I hear the ref call out 30 seconds. So I know there's 30 seconds left in the game. Take a breath. And I breathe out slowly. And I I take aim. And I'm ready to fire. And then I prepare to pull the trigger as many times as I can until their hands go up to end the game and win. As soon as I pull the trigger, instead instead of sending out 30 to 40 paintballs in a matter of seconds like I'd hoped to do, my paintball gun made the sound of a machine gun. Now, to a non-paintball player, that might be a little nerve-wracking or scary, but to a veteran, that means one thing. Someone ran out of air. Sure enough, my paintball gun ran out of air. And instead of highlighting the four people with fun highlighter colors and, and inflicting immense pain on them, they all turned and fired all of their paintballs where they heard the noise. I was bruised, I was beaten, and I was embarrassed. I forgot to check my equipment. I whiffed pretty hard. I spent so much time preparing the perfect setup to show that I was in control, that I was going to dominate the enemy team. And instead, I got hit a lot. The Israelites have just taken Jericho. They're hot off the heels of a huge victory. And in our scripture today, we see that the Israelites choke hard. They whiffed. They lose their next battle just after Jericho. But then we will see them succeed after they fix their errors. And chapter 7 begins with a helicopter narration of what's going on. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, foreshadowing is a literary term where an author will write something that then kind of alludes to something that's going to happen in the future. This isn't really foreshadowing. It's pretty plain what is going on. This is more like dramatic irony. We know what's going to happen to Israel, but Israel doesn't know what's going to happen. So verses 2 and 3, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. 
And the men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack. Do not make the whole people toil there, for they are few. Now Joshua does what a good general does, right? He did this at Jericho, and he's doing it again. He sends spies to spy out the land. The town is weak, they say. We can take them, they say. Don't send everyone, just send a small number, they say. So Joshua, hearing this report, probably making him excited, only sends about 3,000 men to attack I. But when the troops arrive, the battle is so fierce. They are routed before the battle even begins, and they're running and fleeing away and forced to retreat. So what was different this time versus the battle at Jericho? Imagine two men talking, comparing the two, and one saying, well, we didn't walk around the city seven times, you know, or walk around the city each day. Is that what was different? The other man says, well, no, God didn't tell us to walk around I seven times. So then the other man says, well, did we not send enough men? The man replies, well, God didn't really tell us how many men to send, so that can't be it. The man then says, okay, maybe we shouldn't have attacked I. Should we have attacked somewhere else? The man responds, eh, God didn't tell us which city to attack, though I seems like the next logical place. So finally, the man says, well, what did God tell us? Crickets. After the battle of Jericho, Joshua did not seek the counsel of the Lord. And if he did, he would have found out quickly something was wrong. Joshua did what a good general would do, but Joshua didn't do what a servant of the Lord would do. He didn't consult the Lord. Joshua could have saved the lives of countless men. The Israelites wouldn't have lost so many men, and the battle wouldn't have been such a massive defeat. And the battle of Ai in chapter 7 was probably bloodier than the the battle at Jericho, right? I mean, in verse 4 and 5, so about 3,000 men went up from the people, And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 3,000 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabiram and struck them in the desert. Wait, that's not right. I misread that. Israel didn't lose 3,000 men. They lost 36 men. 36 men. They only lost 36 men out of 3,000. That's not that many. Now, a major crushing defeat would have been, say, like the Battle of Cannae in 216 B.C. A general by the name of Hannibal took a very small force and killed 86,000 Roman troops. That was a crushing defeat for the Romans. And even at the Battle of Thermopylae, the famous battle of the 300 Spartans and 4,000 Greeks, the history doesn't always like to remember the Greeks that were there too, that battle, they killed over 150,000 Persians. That was a crushing defeat. Israel lost 36 men. How is this crushing? 36 out of 3,000. While those men had important lives and they probably had families, 36 out of 3,000 isn't that many. But when I see crushing defeats throughout history, the losing side loses everything. And yet, Israel loses 36 men. Now, the Lord was against them in this battle. But we can see when we read this that even though the Lord was against them, he was still acting in grace. The Lord could have wiped them all out. He could have taken all 3,000. That would have been a crushing defeat. 
but instead he takes 36. When we think about the Lord's character, we see that the Lord is never neutral. The Lord never sits and wonders how things are going to turn out. He knows how things are going to turn out. And the Lord is either for you or against you. In this case, the Lord was against Israel. And now some of you may be thinking, wait, hold on, time out, stop, stop everything. You said last week that pre-incarnate Christ came to the Israelites and came to Joshua and said that he was neither for or against Israel. It's true. The leader of the Lord's armies comes and tells Joshua that he's neither for them or against them. But that's because Israel isn't the focus of the story. It may seem like it is, but it's not. God is the focus of the story. And pre-incarnate Jesus could have easily turned the tables on Joshua and asked him if he would follow God or disobey God. God is neither neutral nor wondering how things will turn out. God is always against sin. And God is always for righteousness. Because that's who he is. Now Joshua is not perfect. Remember, this series, while seeming to be about Joshua, and we say his name maybe 70 to 80 times on a Sunday, it's actually about Christ. The book of Joshua and the entire Bible from beginning to end is all pointing to Christ. And in this battle, God is against Israel, and brothers and sisters, that is a crushing defeat. Joshua isn't perfect. And in this battle, Joshua went forward by sight, not forward by faith. Joshua tears his clothes and in great anguish calls out to the Lord, Lord, why are you doing this? Why have you forsaken us? Because Joshua doesn't understand. He falls on his face for a whole day before the ark of the Lord. And, and I, love, I love God's response. I love when God comes to his people and basically tells them to, to get going, to get moving. And God doesn't mince words. God doesn't waste time. And he doesn't scoop Joshua up in his arms and put a pacifier in his mouth and soothe him and tell him it's all going to be okay. Verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken the devoted things and they have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. The people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. This is a decree from God. Ask any general, ask any military officer, watch Lord of the Rings, great movies. Any time you're in a battle, a small force who is motivated, who has courage, can overcome a largely opposing force. When God is against someone, they cannot stand before their enemies. And this is true today as well. At this point, we're going to enter into discussion that I may see some pushback on, but rather than turn the story of Joshua chapter 7 into a moralistic thing that, okay, we don't do this, we do that, I want to apply this thought and I want to do so correctly. When God is against us, we cannot stand before our enemies. And for the Christian, for the one who is in Christ, we are redeemed. God is no longer against us because we are a new creation in Christ. But yet, we're not perfect. We still sin. We still fall short of God's glory. 
Christ's death and resurrection has defeated sin, and we no longer have to suffer the punishment for our sins. Is this confusing? It should be, right? There's a dichotomy here. We're caught in between two things. We're in Christ. God is for us. Yet we sin, and we can't stand before our enemies because of our sin. When we give in to our sin, God doesn't turn a blind eye to it. God doesn't say, well, because of my son, you're good to go. Right? That, that's not what happens. When we sin, we are put at enmity with God. And it is because of Christ's resurrection and death on the cross that we are able to now be forgiven for that sin. But that doesn't mean it's over. The moment we sin, God is going to discipline us. God is going to rebuke us. And that may be hard to hear. We love to talk about how God is this loving God and he just loves us so much. But God hates sin. He cannot bear to stand with sin. So God loves us, but God hates our sin. So what does God do? God disciplines us. God rebukes us. And when a sheep strays from the path, the shepherd grabs his shepherd's crook, that's what that thing's called, and he puts it around the sheep's neck and drags it back to the fold. Sometimes it's painful. So hear me correctly. We have to understand that God is always against sin. And he cannot bear to contend with sin, for he is wholly righteous. So why was Achan's sin such a big deal? Because God dwelt in the camp. God lived with his people in the camp, and the camp was to be holy. Since Jericho was the first victory in the promised land, all of the spoils, everything from the city is dedicated to the Lord, as per the law of Moses. Just like the firstborn son of a family is dedicated to the Lord under the law in this time. So not only did Achan take spoils of Jericho, he took spoils that were dedicated to a holy God. Going a step further, why is our sin such a big deal? Because God through the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are called to be holy. And when we sin, God disciplines us. And when a child disobeys their parent, the parent disciplines the child, or at least they should. All the while, the parent loves the child, and it is for the child's good that they are disciplined, so they will learn to not continue in a state of disobedience. Just like a parent loves their child, so God loves us and does not want us to continue in a state of disobedience. I was a child once. Some of you might think I'm still a child now, and that's okay. I had a mini plastic squirt gun when I was a kid, and my wife's heard this story many times, but you haven't heard it yet. I had this little mini squirt gun. It was about 50 cents, piece of junk. Anyways, I would go around my house thinking I was like a secret agent, humming danger music or the Mission Impossible theme song as I go around corners and, you know, maybe shoot my mom with water. There was one time that I had a soccer game, And my father said, leave the squirt gun at home. And me thinking, a spy never goes anywhere without a gun. Come on. I smuggle it into the car, and then I stuff it in my soccer tube sock. Well, child Ken maybe wasn't that bright. 
I get out of the car, and my father looks at me and says, what do you have in your sock? Now, he's not asking me what's actually in my sock. He can see the giant outline of the plastic squirt gun. He wanted me to say what it was. And I didn't say anything. I just, you know, looked down and maybe covered my face a little bit. And he, he said, all right, give it to me. And I did. He took it, put it on the ground, and he stomped it with its foot, smashing it into a million pieces. I was devastated. But my father decided to take the thing that was causing my disobedience and destroy it. He shattered it into a million pieces. Probably wasn't a million, but it seemed like it at the time. My father removed the thing that was blocking me from obeying him. My punishment, among other things, was my entire world ending for about maybe 30 seconds because he smashed my 50-cent water gun. Because God loves us, he disciplines us. And it may not always be noticeable right away, but when you continue in sin, God will, will, will work to take the sin away from you. Sometimes it's as easy as just bringing it before your eyes and convicting you with it. Sometimes getting rid of the sin is painful and it hurts because God tears it away. It's a good pain because it means that God loves us. And just as the parent who is spanking their child loves their child, so God, when he disciplines us, loves us. Now, not every bad thing that happens to us is the result of our sin. Sometimes bad things just happen because the world is sinful and this world has fallen. But we can know that when bad things happen to us, whether because of our own, for lack of a better word, stupidity, or because the world is sinful, we know that God is going to use it for his glory. And God is going to teach us through that. And that's not always easy to understand. And just like the Father removed the object of my disobedience, so too God the Father removes the object of disobedience in Israel. Achan is found out to have sinned against the Lord. The people and all that he is, Achan, is taken. This was the punishment that the Lord decreed for what was done. Gruesome? Yes. Deserved? Oh yeah. For the wages of sin is death, and apart from God there is no life. Achan needed a mediator, but none was found. He needed someone who could take his place. Now this isn't the end of the sermon, but the knockout punch of chapter 7 is this. Mankind conceived in sin, and in sin do they grow, needs a mediator. Someone who can take on the weight of their sin and bear it. Yet none can be found. God in his infinite mercy and grace sends his son Jesus to bear our sin. To bear your sin, to bear my sin. The crushing weight of sin bore down upon the Son of God, who was pierced for our transgressions, for he committed no sin. The punishment wasn't his, it was ours. But yet he takes it on his shoulders. And because of Christ's work on the cross, we are now free from death and death eternal. That's some good news. That's some really good news. And at the end of Joshua chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 8, Israel has removed the sin from amongst them. And they're ready to go forward, not by sight, but by faith. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, 
and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. We see almost a mirror here of what happens at Jericho. Joshua consults the Lord and then is encouraged to go forward. And even with God on Joshua's side here, we can see that he doesn't send 3,000 men. If we believe that God is on our side, one man would be enough. But Joshua sends all the fighting men because God wants all of the fighting men to see who truly wins the victory. God encourages, then he instructs, and then he promises. God encourages Joshua in the battle that is about to happen. And then God instructs Joshua how to fight the battle that's about to happen. And then God promises victory in the battle that is about to happen. It's at this point we can see the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Joshua, that God is a discerning God and and, and Joshua is a discerning general. The army of Israel marches 15 miles. It's 15 miles back to Ai. And they're doing it at night which is no small feat. And then Joshua sends 30,000 men to go behind the city of Ai. Now, the city of Ai is about 1,700 feet above sea level. 17,000 feet, that'd be way too much. 1,700 feet above sea level. And you go up to Ai because it sits on a mount. So the 30,000 men go behind the city and hide amongst the rocks. And then Joshua takes 5,000 men and sets them on the west side, in between Ai and Bethel, so that if the men of Bethel come out to help the city of Ai, they will have Israelites waiting for them. Pretty, pretty smart general. And then Joshua spends the night with his troops in the camp. And early the next morning, a lot of times in Joshua we read that he gets up early the next morning. He gets up early the next morning, and Joshua takes the army and marches forward to Ai. And the army of Ai has no idea what's about to happen. They couldn't even begin to fathom that they were going to lose this battle. They attack, thinking they're just going to do the exact same thing they did before. And Joshua and the army runs. They turn tail and they run. Ai, thinking they're victorious again, sends everyone from the city out after them. And as soon as they had left, the 30,000 men come around the city of Ai, go up into it, and they burn it down. And then the men of Bethel come out to help. And they find 5,000 Israelites waiting for them. People of Ai and Bethel are no more. The only legacy that survives is this account in the Bible. A people so perverted and so sinful and delighted in their idol worship are snuffed out. Though something happens after the battle of Ai that did not happen after the battle of Jericho. Joshua gathers the entire Israelite nation together and they renew the covenant Chapter 8, verses 32 and 33. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. Joshua recognizes that it's time for Israel to be reminded of what they believe. And not only remind them of what they believe, but remind them as what's come in the past, how they got here. Because one of the biggest problems that Israel had as a nation 
they forgot. They forgot a lot. They would set up stones and they would forget what they're for. But Joshua knows that he needs to encourage his people to follow the Lord and to lead them in following the Lord. And then he writes down the law for them on stone. Verse 34, And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Joshua reads the entire book of the law, just like Moses does before he dies. Now we have these books of the law in our Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So imagine I got up here and read a good chunk of Exodus and almost all of Leviticus. I'm not sure most of you would make it through there. I might fall asleep myself. Leviticus is a tough book. But Joshua reads all of it together with the Israelites. Because he knows this is important. He knows that his people need to follow the Lord. Now in chapter 7 and 8, we see a major defeat. And we see a major victory. And we see a renewal of the covenant. But when we look at what God is telling us through his word, the phrase keeps coming back to me. Liable to destruction. Devoted to destruction. Liable to destruction. Those in sin, those who practice sin, those who spurn God are liable to destruction. The city of Ai was liable to destruction. We cannot feel sorry for the Canaanites who delighted in their idol worship. They spurned the God of creation and they paid for it with their lives. Achan was liable to destruction. He and his family defiled themselves against God and was the cause of death for 36 men. Achan and his family sinned, and their lives were demanded from them. We are liable to destruction. We were born in sin, and our hearts desire sin. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts, but we don't know what that means. And so our hearts seek after every pleasure that won't last. Because of our sinful nature, we are liable to destruction. Remember, our series through Joshua isn't about how awesome Joshua is, though he's pretty cool. It's about how awesome Christ is. The entire story of Joshua points to our need for a Savior. Without a Savior, we are liable to destruction. But for our good and for God's glory, we do have a Savior. Christ Jesus, the commander of the armies of the Lord, the one through whom all things were made, the holy and perfect Son of God went to the cross willingly. And while death may have been the final word for those who spurned God, Christ had the final word. Death could e'er restrain him. To quote the great S.M. Lockridge, Death couldn't handle him and the grave could not hold him. He is the doorway of deliverance and the gate of glory. He's enduringly strong and immortally graceful. He is supreme and he is preeminent. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my King. Do you know him? Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Do you know him? I once had a pastor friend who said, always preach a sermon like someone is in the room that doesn't know Christ. Suffice it to say that all of us here are sinful, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So how do we go on 
when our hearts are constantly pulling us towards sin? How do we go forward in a world that seeks to destroy us? You nail your sin to the cross. You nail it there once and for all. You crucify your sin. Stand guard over it day and night. And when your sin begs to be released, do not let up. When it cries for just one more time, just one more time, and then you don't have to do it ever again, do not give in. Do not let up. By the power of Christ, stand firm on the truth. And make sure that your sin dies a terrible and painful death. For Christ died a terrible and painful death, yet defeated sin and rose from the grave three days later. And while we cannot be sinless on this side of eternity, we can sin less on this side of eternity. And our lives on this earth are short. It won't be long, brothers and sisters, before we stand before our Creator and say that Jesus is Lord. But which side will you be on? Will you be on the side that says it willingly, Jesus, you are Lord? Or will you be on the side that is forced to say it, Jesus, you are Lord? Will you cast your lot with Achan, with I, and with the world of sin? Or will you cast your lot on Christ, the church, and a promise of eternal life, where every day will be better than the last? Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You desire perfection. You've set the line for where you call us to be. Help us to spurn sin and seek you. Help us to defeat our sin. We thank you that you've called us your own. And while you've won the conquest of the promised land, far greater you have won the conquest of our hearts. Hold us close to you and forgive us, we pray. And lead us forth, O King Eternal. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.